What is it? I, Decimus Fossil, have discovered a gigantic mass of matter infusion. A flaming meteorite is heading straight for the Earth! Huh? It's the end of the world! On today's episode, Tintin and Haddock set sail on a nautical adventure, as Urge pens a story that may well sink his career in years to come. This is Radio Tintin, The Shooting Star. On an unseasonably hot evening, Tintin learns that an enormous meteor is heading towards Earth, which will mean, in no uncertain terms, the end of the world as he knows it. Fortunately, the calculations are off, and the meteor passes by Earth with only a small fragment landing in the Arctic Ocean. Tintin, as a representative of the press, because we all know how hard Tintin works as a journalist, is invited to be part of the joint European scientific mission to recover a sample of the meteorite and the new metal it contains. It soon becomes clear that they are not the only ones interested in this new metal, and that a crew from the nation of Sao Rico, funded by the villainous banker Mr. Bullwinkle, have launched their own mission and are determined to recover it for themselves. Our heroes manage to stay one step ahead of their rivals, and Tintin and Snowy reach the floating meteorite via seaplane, claiming it for the scientific community and resolving to stay until the rest of the mission arrives. Waiting atop the meteorite, Tintin falls victim to a series of bizarre phenomena. Giant mushrooms sprout from the surface and explode, entire apple trees grow from a discarded core, and an ordinary spider re-emerges bigger than Snowy. The meteorite begins to sink into the ocean, but Tintin manages to make it back to the ship with a sample of the mysterious metal just in the nick of time, and the good guys win again. Serialised in the Belgian newspaper Le Soir from 20th of October 1941 to the 21st of May 1942, the mysterious star, as titled in its original French, is today considered unique in the Tintin canon for two very different reasons. The first is the foreboding, surreal atmosphere provided by Urge, in which fantasy and reality are blended in a manner unseen in any of his previous work. The second is the inclusion of perceived elements of anti-Americanism, anti-Semitism, and Nazi collaborationism, which would dog Urge for decades to come. By 1941, Urge had settled into a newfound rhythm in German-occupied Belgium, creating Tintin adventures for the French-language newspaper Le Soir. Le Soir was considered a stolen or pirate newspaper meaning that it had been co-opted by the German authorities and now served to propagandise the Nazi war cause. It wouldn't be accurate to suggest that Urge was sympathetic to this cause. After all, his younger brother Paul, one of the primary inspirations for the character of Tintin, was languishing at the time in a German prisoner of war camp. However, it is fair to suggest that he was more than prepared to use his newfound privilege as one of Belgium's few remaining cartoonists with guaranteed circulation to solidify his readership and enhance the standing of his creation. To once more quote Pierre Asselini on Urge's attitude toward the Belgian occupation, To Urge, the king was the personification of Belgian resistance, and it was in this light that he understood the speech given by Leopold III the day after the surrender. The war was over, the Germans occupied the country. As horrible as it was, the situation could not last forever. 
In other words, let's be practical and adapt while waiting for better times. In this attitude, Urge's sentiments were somewhere in the middle of the spectrum by those held by his fellow employees at La Soir, where political affiliation seemed to depend on which department of the paper you worked in. The paper's typesetters and photo engravers had been retained from before the beginning of the war, and were definitely not as comfortable with the paper's new editorial direction as Urge, and loud arguments would occur whenever Urge visited their offices. Despite this, Urge seemed to retain the benefit of their doubt. These political arguments could occur, because no one really believed Urge would ever report such political dissidents to the German authorities. He was, in their opinion, and by his own admission, a man of no fervent political conviction outside his deference to the monarchy, instead allowing his beliefs to be shaped by those around him. This runs the risk of sounding like a post-facto justification for collaboration. But recall that Tintin went from promoting European colonialism to championing the equality of races in less than five years, based on nothing more than Urge's chance meeting and subsequent friendship with a Chinese student. Now, that same benefit of doubt would not be afforded to Lassois' editorial staff, headed by a man that Urge now looked up to for guidance, Raymond de Becker. Urge had an association with de Becker going back years, having previously illustrated two political pamphlets for the crusading journalist in 1930. De Becker had been a strong advocate of Belgian exceptionalism and anti-parliamentarianism from an early age. Intense, intellectual, and non-conformist, a man who rallied against stagnant liberal values while himself openly homosexual, his was naturally the kind of personality that Urge would be drawn to. From his former editor Norbert Vallez to his friend Shang Shonren, to now Raymond de Becker, there is a recurring pattern of Urge falling completely under the influence of men who seem to have an explanation for the chaos of the world around them, a panacea to his own Gemini indecision. It is tempting, but inaccurate, to describe men such as de Becker as Nazis, who were, after all, uniquely German creations. The interwar period produced a patchwork of right-wing nationalist ideas and movements that clashed and overlapped with one another. However, de Becker's writings contained many themes that would have received a tacit nod of approval from the German propagandists. Namely, neutrality in a European war, the need for a new European order unburdened by decadent materialism and impotent democracy, and the old fascist adage of action for the sake of action. For these sympathies, he was deemed an ideal candidate to take over the editorship of Le Soir, and under whose guidance the paper would begin to espouse, with varying degrees of vehemence, anti-Semitism. One journalist writing for Le Soir declared in January 1941, It is clear that we can no longer content ourselves with excluding the Jew from certain areas of control of public life. We must consider him as a foreigner from a race opposed to ours, and refuse to mingle our blood with his. We must permanently substitute a well-thought-out, systematic anti-Semitism. This is, of course, a single example from a single issue of Le Soir, and not necessarily the ugliest. And so, under such conditions and in such a publication, Urge set about writing what we now refer to in English as the shooting star. The most basic inspiration for the story seems to be the need for a nautical adventure to justify the inclusion of newly created Captain Haddock. This story coming before the point in the series where Tintin and Haddock lived communally and platonically, removing the need for such contrivances. 
Before this seafaring escapade kicks off, however, Tintin is gripped by an existential crisis completely unlike anything seen before or after in the series. The story begins in the standard Urge fashion of having Tintin and Snowy enjoying a walk and encountering something curious. On this occasion, however, the walk takes place in the evening, and the discovery, an unknown star shining brightly in the sky, seems to signal to both the reader and to Tintin that things are not quite as they seem. The tone of the first act quickly devolves into the strange, bordering on the unsettling. The star is growing larger and it's getting hotter by the moment. Tintin stops by the observatory for answers, but is instead greeted by an astronomer-turned-doomsayer hurriedly exiting the building and warning of an impending judgement. While two more astronomers inside are too engrossed in complex mathematical equations to explain anything. Something is clearly very wrong, but both Tintin and the reader are left to work it out for themselves. Through the eyepiece of the enormous telescope, we discover, in shared horror, an enormous intergalactic spider hovering somewhere in the atmosphere. Perhaps we can attribute this lapse in judgement to astrological phenomena. Surely the famed boy reporter, clever enough to take down Al Capone's criminal empire single-handedly, would be able to determine that he's just looking at a regular house spider sitting atop the lens? The truth, however, is no less disturbing. The star is, in fact, a meteor heading towards Earth, large enough, the director assures in no uncertain terms, to produce the end of the world at exactly 8.12 and 30 seconds the next morning. Tintin walks home in a daze, taking in the sights of a world unknowingly on the brink. Rats emerge from the sewer in a panicked horde, Snowy becomes stuck in the melting tar of the roads, and car tyres burst from the heat alone. Poor things, Tintin remarks pitifully, as he walks past a crowd of people gazing calmly at the incoming object of their destruction. If only they knew. It's rare and troubling to see this level of despair in the eternal Boy Scout. To see him faced with a problem he can't solve through pluck and vigour, and the compelling urge is just to comfort him. Upon the streets, there is no final mass to offer him his last rites, nor is there a mass panic through which he can perhaps indulge in his hitherto unseen destructive impulse. No, in the burden of this terrible knowledge, Tintin is alone. Well, almost alone. He is followed home by the astronomer-turned-doomsayer, now dressed in a toga and calling himself Philippolis the Prophet, who heckles and harasses Tintin, calling him an agent of Satan. Good and evil are pretty fixed forces in the Tintin universe, but rarely are they explicitly ascribed to the divine, and it's another disconcerting element to have the poster child of Catholic conservatism hounded as one in league with the devil. Tintin treats such accusations with due respect, and water is dumped upon Philippolis as he harangues outside Tintin's apartment. The end of the world, Snowy. The end of the world. The end of the world. Do you understand, Snowy? Snowy doesn't answer because he's a dog. Now, if you're thinking Tintin is simply going to doze off in an armchair in the face of an impending apocalypse, yeah, you're correct, that's exactly what he does. Which is either the very worst or very best way to spend your last mortal moments. 
He is quickly awoken by Philippolis, who has somehow entered his house. Prophets come and go as they please, he declares to an outraged Tintin, and unfurls a poster of The Judgment, a picture of the same enormous spider that Tintin saw on the lens of the observatory telescope. The short dream doesn't last, and Tintin wakes up once more in his chair, alone. With a sense of horror, I can only compare to sleeping through your alarm and waking up five minutes before you're meant to be at work. Please donate to the Radio Tintin Patreon. He realizes he has woken up just in time to experience the end. Help! A desperate Tintin squeaks to nobody, clutching the telephone receiver as the speaking clock service counts him down to 8, 12, and 30 seconds, a single bead of sweat falling down his petrified face. This is it, he cries, covering his ears as his apartment is struck by violent tremors. The end of the world! The windows shatter, cracks run up the walls, the chandelier crashes to the floor. We're dead, Tintin declares, eyes closed. A single piece of falling plaster striking Tintin on the head is enough to break the illusion. No, on second thoughts, we aren't dead, Tintin tells Snowy with his usual pluck. And it isn't the end of the world, it's nothing but an earthquake. Filled with a renewed lust for life I can only compare to having once found seven McNuggets in my six pack, Tintin joyfully returns to the observatory for an explanation. A mistake was made in these complex mathematical equations, and the meteor passed by Earth, with only a small piece of meteorite landing in the Arctic Ocean, which caused the earthquake. Tintin and Professor Fossil of the observatory resolved to set sail and recover a sample of the unknown metal, and 14 pages in, the shooting star finally begins in earnest. So, what can one make of the first act of Tintin and the Shooting Star? Tintinologists are quick to liken the sense of unease and impending doom to that felt by the citizens of Europe during the Second World War. And it's a comparison that cannot be ignored completely. Like that of the Serbs and the long-suffering Poles, anxiety over being sandwiched between two belligerent powers was built into the national DNA of the Belgians. Why, Auger's earliest cartoon was a schoolbook doodle of a spy playing tricks on Germans during the last occupation in 1914. The panels showing the citizens of Brussels gathered outside their homes in the wake of the earthquake's destruction is reminiscent of much of the wartime newsreel footage, particularly those images of Londoners picking through the rubble the morning after a bombing raid during the Blitz. Harry Thompson summarises the metaphor thusly. A giant meteor represented the war itself, a terrible apparition capable of destroying life, limb and property, but ultimately something that would pass by without lasting damage. However, this analysis is undermined slightly by the reality that the shooting star was created at a time in which Hergé seems to have largely made peace with the reality of German occupation, and whose anxieties were generally confined to making sure his publishers got the colour saturation for his albums correct. Even as a reservist for the military, mobilised in the outbreak of the war and sent back and forth from the front, there isn't really anxiety or fear in his correspondence, merely bemusement and frustration. And there are no scenes of mass panic in the shooting star, no long lines of desperate refugees that would have also appeared in the aforementioned newsreel footage. While his brother Paul's imprisonment in a German prisoner of war camp would surely have caused him no shortage of worry, he was also fortunate enough to be able to ensure care packages were sent to him via the Red Cross, a luxury not afforded to many prisoners. So while it's impossible to remove the shooting star from the tumultuous period of history in which it was written, it's also impossible to remove it from Urge's own feelings, and it seems 
inconsistent to argue that Hergé was motivated by anxiety over German invasion in creating the same story for which he is also accused of endorsing German domination of Europe. Less explored is the place of the shooting star in the genre of apocalypse fiction. The apocalypse confronted by Tintin is a pre-nuclear one, before it was conceived that man-made weapons could usher in the end of humanity, and it belongs to an older tradition where the end of the world had to be delivered through either natural phenomena or divine judgement. We can draw parallels to the panic generated around the last passing of Halley's Comet in 1910. French astronomer Camille Flammarion declared in the New York Times that the toxic gases of the comet's tail would impregnate the atmosphere and possibly snuff out all life on the planet. While an enormous majority of the scientific community didn't agree with this assessment, it didn't stop panic-stricken people across the world from buying up anti-comet pills as some sort of miracle cure offered by opportunistic charlatans. You can draw modern comparisons as you see fit. Halley's Comet was preceded by another apocalypse that wasn't, the so-called Great Disappointment of 1844, in which followers of the Protestant revival Millerite movement were led to believe that the second coming of Christ was due on October 22nd, based on an intensive numerological study of the Old Testament by the movement's leader, preacher William Miller. From the diary of devout Millerite Henry Emmons, I waited all Tuesday and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint. And before dark I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without pain but sick with disappointment. In The Shooting Star, Hergé manages to conflate both the scientific and the divine apocalypse. The meteor heading to Earth, observed and studied through scientific equipment and mathematical equations, is a natural phenomenon. But it is interpreted by the physicist Philippolis as a sign of divine judgement, who immediately transforms himself into a devoted prophet of doomsday. Philippolis is, in this way, similar to William Miller, who initially embraced theism, which is a rationalist theology that posited that the existence of a god or creator could be proven through empirical and scientific study of the universe before embracing the annihilationist premonitions of the movement that later bore his name. Hergé was culturally Catholic, but hardly a religious zealot, and he shows his contempt for such dramatics. And even in the face of impending catastrophe, Tintin sees it fit to righteously dump water on the self-aggrandizing Philippolis as he hectors outside his apartment. However, the cold rationalism of the scientific process is not free from Hergé's mockery either. Upon being told the meteor is set to collide with Earth, Tintin innocently and hopefully suggests that a mistake was made in the mathematical equations. Instantly overwhelmed by the complexity of the equations in front of him, Tintin resolves to take the astronomers at their word. Sure enough, when Tintin returns the next day wondering why everyone's still alive, it is revealed that the calculations were actually indeed off. Perhaps this is a critique of the technocratic elite aloof from the common people whose problems they purport to serve, which would have been a common target of Hergé's culturally conservative worldview. Or perhaps it's just a funny joke. Benoit Peters has provided the possible attribution of Philippolis's namesake to Philip Patan, the French war hero turned Nazi puppet of Vichy France, or possibly Hergé's good friend and later collaborator, that's creative collaborator, not Nazi collaborator, Philip Girard. But honestly, neither of these have the same obvious allegorical value as the names of some of Hergé's other characters. For example, Tintin and the Broken Ears' Basil Bazarov standing in for the real-world arms dealer Basil Zaharoff. 
The pesky prophet rouses Tintin from his armchair in one of the most unusual dream sequences in the series. While the hallucinogenic fantasies of Cigars of the Pharaoh and Crab with the Golden Claws are unambiguously that, Philippus presenting to Tintin an image of his judgement in the form of a giant spider is played remarkably straight. It has the effect of casting a shadow of doubt over the rest of the story. At any moment, but particularly when things start getting weird again in the third act, the reader half expects Tintin to wake up from his armchair once more. In effect, the story's first act, the titular shooting star, the observatory, the end of the world, is nothing but a preamble to set up a much more traditional Tintin adventure. As erupt as the prospect of Tintin confronting the end of the world with only Snowy for solace is, it's dropped almost instantly so that Tintin can take to the sea in a resumption of the series' status quo. And that's where the anti-Semitism begins. Allegedly. But before we get to that, let's take a break. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. I was just looking at the list of my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Radio Tintin podcast and thinking about how much I love and respect each and every one of them. They would already know this because they got to listen to this episode a little bit earlier. This episode has taken a lot longer than I thought it would to produce, and that's mostly down to this year. I'm working essentially nine to five, five days a week. Whereas previously I could take a day or two per week if necessary to work on the podcast. I'm now pretty much down to, like most people, just after work or on the weekends. And I've got to split that time amongst sort of various different creative projects that I'm working on. So having patrons is definitely something that motivates me personally. It's not really about the money. I don't anticipate getting rich or even <laughs> or even making a profit on this podcast anytime soon. It's just gratifying to know that there are people out there prepared to, you know, put even a little bit of their money on the line to support this show. I find it very gratifying. So if you have found yourself really looking forward to the next episode of this podcast, by all means, please consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash radio tin tin podcast. If you are unable or just unwilling to put some money up for the podcast, which is totally fine, please do consider rating and reviewing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whichever apps allow rating and reviewing. I don't think Google Podcasts does for some reason. The plan is definitely to pick up the pace for the remaining episodes for 2022. Fingers crossed that goes well. Hope to see you along for the ride. And uh, now let's get back to that Crazy Kid Tintin, and his selection of uh, male friends that are significantly older than him. Having established that the meteorite is floating somewhere in the Arctic Sea, no, that wouldn't actually happen, try not to think too much about it, a nautical expedition is organised, featuring the scientific representatives of the various nations of Europe with Captain Haddock at the helm of the ship Aurora and Tintin representing the press. No, in case you're wondering, he isn't actually seen writing anything. Tintin thwarts an erratic attempt to blow up the ship with dynamite from Philippolis, who it is revealed is now residing in a psychiatric facility, but that is only the start of their problems. The voyage is beset with sabotage and deception from the beginning. A larger ship attempts to ram them on the high seas, they are refused oil for refueling in Iceland, and are sent on a wild goose chase to attend a falsely reported capsizing. The cause is quickly determined. The United States have launched a rival expedition to claim the materials of the meteorite first, backed by an unscrupulous banker by the name of Mr. Blumenstein. And it would be this story element that would, from its first publication, produce accusations of anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism. 
Critics see Tintin, along with representatives from neutral or Nazi-aligned nations, effectively pitted against the forces of sinister American capitalism, led by an unscrupulous hook-nosed Jewish banker at the height of the Second World War. Is this a justified analysis? First of all, to conflate anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism today seems a little bit silly, but there were indeed vocal elements within Europe that mistrusted the American industrial machine and considered America an unworthy rival for global influence. It could be argued that Hergé's Americans in The Shooting Star are the same as those he presented a decade earlier in Tintin in America, a people happily jettisoned from the old world sensibilities of Europe, awash in a land of frantic, mechanized ultra-capitalism, where the fusty old values of community and order have given way to the excited search for the next quick buck. If a nation was to put forward an expedition to rival that of the unified European scientific establishment, who would have the temerity but the Americans? In this sense, the decision of Hergé and his publishers to later change the nationality of the rival expedition to the fictional nation of Sao Rico rings somewhat hollow. The United States, for better or worse, is a unique historical entity, and cannot truly be made analogous. Of course, in his earlier adventure, Tintin at least had the opportunity to meet some affable characters as well. The intention of Tintin in America was to caution impressionable readers about the fallacy of the American dream, but also to leave them with a sense of bemusement towards their fast-talking, entrepreneurial Yankee cousins. The shooting star, in contrast, only offers the very worst of that national character, and the profit motive drives the crew of the rival ship, the Perry, to the blackest acts of high seas treachery. The national composition of the European expedition has also raised more than a few eyebrows. The New Order is a term used to describe the European political order as conceived and proposed by the Nazis at the height of their power. Hitler argued that the political realignment of the continent, made possible by the rapid and complete military victories of the German war machine, would lead to a newly integrated Europe, bound by a sense of racial and ideological unity. The Nazis would, naturally, be the leaders of such an order, but the concept provided the conquered peoples of Europe, such as the Belgians, with the possible belief that the German invasion was a necessary step on the way to a glorious new era for Europe, where the scientific and industrial capabilities of the continent would be pulled together, finally unshackled by the subversive elements of liberalism and so-called Judeo-Bolshevism. Was Hergé a believer in the new order? The post-war trials he faced concluded that he probably was not, However, considering especially the publication in which the shooting star appeared, it's not difficult to see why many critics see the scientific voyage of the Aurora as an exercise in New Order propaganda. After all, they say, the mission is made up of the brightest scientific minds from Germany, France, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland, all decidedly Axis-aligned or neutral nations at the height of the Second World War. However, this accusation about the ship's crew doesn't seem to... <laughs> hold water. Thompson argues, There were only two countries left in 1941 that were not either neutral or occupied. One was Russia, as Asian as it was European, an anthema to all Belgians. The other was Britain, and there was already a Britain with the party in the shape of Haddock. Furthermore, another Britain, the splendid Captain Chester, does the party a good turn on the dockside at Reykjavik when the Americans attempt to put a block on the Aurora's petrol supply. The inclusion of a Jewish financier as the main antagonist, however, is harder to defend. While it would be unfair to describe him, as some critics do, as a figure pulled straight from Nazi propaganda, the physical characteristics, the long nose, beady eyes, pinstripe suit and fat cigar, are all at least present. 
It could be argued that the main target of Urge's criticism was not the Jewish people, but American capitalists, many of whom are Jewish. This, of course, ignores the common tactic of anti-Semites, both contemporary and modern, to conflate Jews and financiers as a means to criticise the former while only mentioning the latter. It's sort of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge for people that are terrible. You may also argue, as Urge did for many years, that while Blumenstein is indeed a Jew, it doesn't mean all Jews are wicked. In the wake of the revelations of the full and terrible extent of the Holocaust, Urge would defend accusations of anti-Semitism frequently. Writing to a female reader in 1954, The Shooting Star was already an old project written prior to Nazi extermination camps. If it had been created later, I would not have introduced a character named Blumenstein to avoid any hint, even an innocent one, of racism, which I think is abominable as you do. But I would like to make it clear to you, even at the time the character appeared, it had no anti-Semitic meaning at all. You can find any number of unpleasant individuals in my books. English colonists who beat up the Chinese, German killers, double-dealing Japanese, horrible African witch doctors, Chicago gangsters, rotten police of all nationalities. The caricatures I have made of all these types of bad guys has never meant I had anything against the yellows, blacks, or whites as a people. Two decades later, his defence remained the same. We've always told Jewish stories, Marseille stories, Scottish stories. But who could have predicted that the Jewish stories would end up as we now know that they did, in the death camps of Treblinka and Auschwitz? No, we can't blame Urge for failing to predict the extent of the worst genocide of the 20th century, but the comparison is an inadequate one. Urge wasn't writing in a newspaper that was using reams upon reams of preciously rationed paper to print articles denigrating the Scots. Those camps and the prejudices that underpin their construction did not spring up overnight, and they needed the groundwork laid by hundreds and hundreds of publications, such as the one Urge was writing Tintin for. Fortunately, the most cringe-inducing instance of anti-Semitism only appeared in the newspaper strip and was removed from the album publication. In the story's opening act, two visibly Jewish shopkeepers overhear Philippolis inform Tintin about the end of the world, leading to the following exchange. Now, Benoit Peters provides the English translation with a stereotypically Jewish inflection of the words. I presume there's something similar in the original French, but I'm just going to read it normally because I think the Jewish people have suffered enough. Did you hear, Isaac? The end of the world. What if it's true? Hey, hey, it would be a good thing, Solomon. I owe my suppliers 50,000 francs, and this way, I won't have to pay them. It's funny, because they love money. Perhaps all these elements can be explained away individually as a joke or a misunderstanding, but when you compile them all together, it becomes very difficult to ignore the politics of the shooting star and the very ugly nature of those politics. Urge always maintained that if he knew the extent of the Nazi atrocities, he never would have published what he did, and truthfully, there's no reason not to believe him. But the fact remains, in publishing what he did, when he did, and especially where he did, he was either showcasing a level of complicity in those atrocities, or a naivety that bordered on complete ignorance. Jean-Marc and Randy Loffesser say it best. To this day, the shooting star is sadly still used by extreme right-wing Nazi apologists to bolster their ridiculous claim that Urge was pro-Nazi and anti-Semitic. Looking at his entire life oeuvre and statements, he was not. But the existence of the shooting star and Urge's subsequent inability to deal with it are sad moments in Tintin's history.
Our second act culminates with Tintin perishing onto the meteorite, staking his claim mere seconds before the rival crew of the Perry reach it. If Hergé's conception of justice, as shown in Tintin in America, is a child's game of cops and robbers, his conception of scientific discovery is finders keepers. Tintin's alone on the high seas, miles from the rest of his crew, and even further from any semblance of authority, defending his treasure with nothing but a flag, a lunchbox, and a very small dog. The Americans, determined to try and send him to the bottom of the ocean only minutes earlier, ultimately decide that fair's fair, and presumably resolve to just return to shore empty-handed, disappearing from the story entirely. Tintin is left alone to await the rest of the crew, at which point the story once more veers into unusual territory. It's never explained, but presumably the meteorite has some sort of extraterrestrial quality that causes things to grow exponentially. A discarded apple core becomes a veritable orchard of apple trees sprouting up from the meteor's surface, while the worm he found in the apple transforms overnight into an enormous moth. A sense of dread begins to creep over Tintin and the reader. What became of that tiny spider Snowy chased away from the lunch pail? Sure enough, it creeps into frame, now as large as Snowy, and prepared to scurry after both of them in revenge before mercifully being crushed by an enormous apple falling from one of the many trees. Now the spider's appearance rounds off a nice little motif displayed throughout the shooting star. First, Tintin thinks he sees a gigantic spider upon the telescope's lens. Then, dreams that Philippolis shows him one in his apartment, foreshadowing the spider's eventual appearance in earnest in the final act of the story. It's atypical for Urge, and I'm not really sure what he was trying to achieve with it, but it's satisfying to have that spider appear three times throughout the course of the story. Now, why are there gigantic mushrooms that swell up from the meteorite surface and pop like balloons? There's no explanation given, no justification either thematically or narratively for that one. Maybe there were trace fungal elements on Tintin's boots? It's just a weird bit of fun. While not as tonally out of place as the story's very grim opening act, Tintin's meteorite escapades, with its strange new world and fantastic beasts, seems more reminiscent now of the post-war American comic book scene than anything previous in the Tintin series. It would be a solid two and a half decades before Tintin again waded into the mysterious waters of science fiction. Ultimately, the apple trees and exploding mushrooms are enough to cause the meteorite to sink to the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. There's a sentence I never thought I'd say. And in a masterfully suspenseful and drawn out sequence, Tintin is able to escape back to the Aurora with a sample of the meteorite in just the nick of time. Blumenstein is arrested for his wicked deeds and the scientific community celebrates their acquisition of this exciting new medal, which is never mentioned in the series again. I guess it wasn't that special after all. Or did Tintin destroy the sample after realising Hitler was planning on using its growth properties to create an agriculturally dependent army? Yeah, let's just pretend he did that. The mysterious star, in its original French, was serialised as noted in Le Soir from 20th of October 1941 to 21st of May 1942, and that's a period of time that included the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor and the official entry of, who else, the United States into the Second World War. The inclusion of American antagonists would have seemed particularly prescient by story's end. 
The story would be published in album format later the same year, with minimal revisions. The Shooting Star was the first Tintin story to be created specifically with the 62-page format in mind, removing the cutting and pasting required of earlier stories. It would also be the first Tintin album to appear in colour, though the stories would continue to appear first in black and white when they were serialised in Le Soir. The two Jewish shopkeepers, mercifully, did not make the cut, though it's difficult to ascertain upon whose recommendation this omission was made. We can hope Hergé or his publishers at Casterman had seen that such attitudes had gone beyond a joke. Six days after the serial ended, wearing yellow stars in public became mandatory for Belgian Jews. Regardless of the content of the stories, Tintin's appearance in Le Soir had already been somewhat controversial with sectors of the Belgian public. Auger had received this anonymous letter the previous year. Permit me, sir, as the father of a large family, to express my sorrow and disappointment at seeing Tintin and Snowy appear in the new soir. Have you thought about the responsibility that you have assumed? Little by little, children will come under the new influence, insidiously and deceitfully the venom of their neo-pagan religion from beyond the Rhine will be introduced in the margins of your entertaining drawings. They will no longer speak of God, of the Christian family, of the Catholic ideal. Can you agree to collaborate in this terrible act, a real sin against the spirit? This time, however, the backlash hit close to the home, at least according to Albert Delacour, who spent the war in a German prisoner of war camp alongside Hergé's brother, Paul Remy. One day, in late 1941 or early 1942, Paul Remy turned green with rage when he read his brother's comic strip in what we called the Pirate Le Soir. It was from The Shooting Star. You could see the boat full of bad guys rowing towards the famous island and flying the American flag. It received a lot of furious letters, I believe. Not many of which Hergé would have read. That kind of correspondence was usually censored by the prison camp authorities. At the risk of speculation, it does appear that Hergé's relationship with his brother, ironically the same brother he would cite as one of the main inspirations behind Tintin himself, was strained somewhat in the decades after the war. If this is indeed the case, we can perhaps sympathise with Paul Remy, languishing in a prison camp while his brother depicts his would-be saviours as nothing more than violent gangsters. Not all criticism was political. Perhaps lacking an appropriate model in his archive of magazine and newspaper clippings, the ship the Aurora was conceived almost purely from Hergé's imagination, and he was quickly informed by several informed readers that the ship's design would ensure it wouldn't stay afloat for more than 10 minutes. The hydroplane aboard its deck, however, was recognisably a German Arado 196, which did nothing to alleviate the aforementioned accusations of collaboration. Perhaps indicative of the story's fantastic tone, Hergé plays fast and loose with most of the science in the world of the shooting star. And Asselini notes that a meteor would never be able to generate the heat depicted in the opening act, and that upon impact it wouldn't simply float, but plunge to the bottom of the ocean causing seismic activity. We're still a long way from the hard science of explorers on the moon. Post-war changes were small but significant. Perhaps no longer wishing to depict the liberators of Belgium quite so negatively, the rival expedition is not a private American venture, but, as noted, one of the fictional nation of Sao Rico. The stars and stripes of the flags are replaced with a similarly imaginary design, though the ship's names retain their American origin. The Perry, after famed Arctic explorer Robert Perry, and the Kentucky Star. 
Seeking a less conspicuously Semitic name, Urge once more drew upon his affection for the Brusilian dialect when he rechristened Blumenstein Bolwinkle, taken for the Brussels name for a small candy store. Problem solved. No more anti-Semitism. Urge afterwards found out that Bolwinkle was also a Jewish surname. Now, to be fair, this was a long time before Google, and Urge wasn't exactly active in many Jewish social circles at the time. He would later note his desire to revise the villain's damningly long nose, but for whatever reason, these designs were never realised, and Blumenstein or Bolwinkle, the villain of the shooting star, remains conspicuously Jewish. Speaking of unchanged characters, Captain Haddock is back, and Urge had a lot of fun with his new role as the president of the Society of Sober Sailors, showing him stashing aside crates of whiskey for the journey and drinking whenever possible. Unlike in the preceding story, he is never shown to be pathetic, and his alcoholism is never a hindrance to the mission. In fact, Tintin actively encourages his intoxication at one point, as a means to give the captain the courage to give chase to the Aurora. Now, you could classify this kind of behaviour as enabling, and you'd be right. The reader is also given a very rare insight into the captain's life pre-Tintin through his encounter with Captain Chester, who he encounters in Iceland with a complex greeting ritual that baffles the non-seafaring Tintin. Chester proves to be a valuable ally, listening intently to their plight and helping them to overcome Blumenstein's scheme to prevent their ship from refuelling. Despite this, Chester would never again make an appearance in the series, though he would be mentioned on several occasions. Snowy is still Tintin's confidant, thrown into the danger zone by Urge to ensure Tintin has somebody to speak to, and in Michael Farr's estimation, providing most of the laughs in an otherwise mostly humorless story. The gag in which he urinates on a stick of dynamite to defuse it was recycled from a discarded sequence from the earlier Cigars of the Pharaoh. Never let a good dog piss joke go to waste. Detectives Thompson and Thompson are almost completely absent in this story, relegated to a speechless single-panel cameo as part of the crowd clamouring to see the departure of the Aurora, along with Urge's second stringers Quick and Flupke. Considering their tendency for involving themselves in international affairs without much concern, it is surprising that Urge didn't include them on board the ship. A shame, as well. The multinational group aboard the Aurora boast unusually shaped heads, but little else to make them very interesting. Astronomer Decimus Fossil of the Observatory is only the latest of Urge's quirky professor characters, and even he comes across as more grumpy than quirky. His request for a pound's worth of caramel candies in celebration of discovering the meteor's metal might be an eccentricity, but it might just be a reference to wartime shortages of most foods. No, most of the eccentricities are instead channeled into the madness of Philippolis the Prophet, whose violent delusions are reminiscent of the insane Dr. Sarcophagus of 1934's Cigars of the Pharaoh. Uh, what can I say, Urge likes old scientists going mad. In a nice little piece of world-building, French expedition member Professor Paul Cantonu would reappear as one of the victims of Rascar Capac in Urge's South American two-parter, Seven Crystal Balls, Prisoners of the Sun. I've also just realised that Count on You is uh, probably meant to be a pun for Count on You. Which is nice. The English language translation contains a few more quirks, courtesy of translators Leslie Lonsdale Cooper and Michael Turner. Waking up from his ill-timed nap, Tintin says he had better check the time by dialing Tim, the nickname given to the speaking clock service in the United Kingdom. Additionally, the crew of the Aurora sits down for a very British meal of sausages and mashed potatoes, better known as bangers and mash, rather than the original sausages and sauerkraut. 
The story was adapted into the 1950s Belvision television series, Urge's Adventures of Tintin, which, in fashion typical of the series, retained the basic premise but changed a lot of details. In this version, Professor Fossil is replaced with Professor Calculus, who had not made his debut when Urge wrote the original. The Thompsons join in on the voyage, and there is a sequence featuring a submarine attack. The 1990s Ellipse Nirvana television series are generally much more faithful to the original, though the newer television series does remove the Iceland sequence and keeps Blumenstein tactfully nameless. Some people believe that the perceived politics of the shooting star cannot be removed from its artistic value, and in that regard believe it is a bad story. And that is completely fine, and that is their prerogative if that's what they decide. It's not my job to tell anybody what they should or should not be offended by. I personally think those interpretations have to be factored very much into any analysis of this story, uh, which is why I have spent so much time discussing it here. But as a pure adventure, I think The Shooting Star is just brilliant. I think it's fantastic. It was one of the Tintin stories, similar to The Broken Ear, which seemed to me to be sandwiched between more important stories. It succeeded Haddock's debut in The Crab with the Golden Claws, but it preceded a fantastic two-parter, and it's probably one of the stories that never really interested me when I was younger. I thought it was just a bit too weird, a bit too offbeat. Now, I think those are the most interesting aspects of the story, and I was surprised, as I usually am when I'm rereading these albums, just how good it was. And I think that final act in particular, where Tintin has to escape the sinking meteor, is just well done. It's fantastic, suspenseful sequence that is just very well rendered onto the page. I would estimate, if you asked every Tintin fan to rank their favourite Tintin stories from best to worst, Shooting Star would not appear in the top half very often. I don't think it's many people's favourite Tintin story. But I think that's more an indictment of the strength of the other stories rather than the weakness of this one. If you go into it understanding some of those more problematic elements and being prepared for those, I think it is a lot of fun. <laughs> but, I, you know, he, he probably should have changed that guy's name. <laughs> and, as all Tintin stories were, it was a big hit when it was released. There were those people, even then, who were really quite distraught by the politics of the story. Very understandably, considering when it was written. But for a lot of people, even people who were aware of it, they probably didn't care. They probably had some bigger things to worry about. When you're living under foreign occupation, your first concerns are not, what is the cultural makeup of the villain in this comic book strip? And so it wouldn't be till after the war that there was really a lot of focus on the shooting star. It does seem that at the time, the criticism that struck Urge the most was that of the design of his ship, the Aurora. The perfectionist that he was, you get the impression that he was determined to make up for this blunder and determined to create a new ship that was designed with meticulous accuracy. And so, after a brief break following the culmination of the shooting star, Tintin and Haddock would set forth on their next adventure. This time, the ship itself would be the star. Until next time, this has been Radio Tintin. Thank you for tuning in. I do read 
a lot of things. I do a lot of research for this podcast. One of the reasons why it takes so long to get it out there. But as a English speaker, not a French speaker, I'm somewhat limited in what I can research. As you can imagine, quite a lot of things relating to Tintin and Hergé are in French. And Duolingo's good. It is good, but it ain't quite that good, at least not yet. So I am uh, indebted to the resources that are available in English, particularly Hergé, Son of Tintin by Benoit Peters. Of all the uh, Hergé biographies I've read, I think this is definitely the one I'd recommend. It really does a deep dive into a lot of the correspondence, a lot of the personal stuff of Hergé that would otherwise be completely inaccessible to a poor English speaker like me. So pick that one up. Highly recommend it if you'd like to learn more. Hope to have a special shorter episode out for you before too long, but you know what? I've been wrong with my predictions before, so I won't try and give that a timeline. But I will tell you to jump on the Instagram again at tintin.podcast, at Facebook, forward slash Radio Tintin Podcast, and you know what? Yeah, jump on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Radio Tintin Podcast. Just give me some money. Come on, you don't need it. I need it. These Benoit Peters books won't pay for themselves. No, but seriously, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you very soon. Urge had received this letter the previous year. Urge had received this anonymous. Urge had received this anonymous. Urge had received this letter. Urge had received this anonymous letter the previous year.